Hello again. So I'm over at the University of Sheffield and I'm talking to um, Penny Andrews. And Penny is a PhD student at the Information School here at the University of Sheffield. And she's doing work on researchers and library staff and their use of, uh, use of and perceptions of sharing research. She's also done research into library user design and experience. And she's also a political activist um, and disability activist and, crucially, a big Ed Balls fan. So hi, Penny. Hi, Chris. How are you doing? I'm okay, thank you. Uh, thanks for talking to me and taking some time out. Um, so I think I um, I probably first encountered you on Twitter, probably. Yeah. Um, but then we've met at a kind of a few events and things as well. That we've both we spoken have, yeah. at. Yeah. Um, and so obviously, my, this podcast is is a digital sociology podcast. Um, I don't suppose you would consider yourself to be a sociologist. But um, you are very much a digital person, I would say, and you yeah. are, you are kind of influenced by sociology to some extent. Uh, yeah, I use a lot of stuff from sociology, so I, I guess I'm quite interdisciplinary. In that, if I only look to stuff from library information science, I think I miss a lot of important scholarship on the things that I'm looking at. Yeah. And uh, if I and if I restricted it to just scholarly communication type literature, it would be mm. even more limiting because that tends to be a lot of either practitioner-based studies from the library side or bibliometric analyses and stuff mm. like that. And I'm a qualitative researcher, I'm doing ethnography. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, yeah, I look at a lot of sociology and STS stuff and I've been known to call myself a digital sociologist. <laughs> because <laughs> because I don't have a sociology background. I don't have any sociology qualifications. No. But... I've read a lot of theory now. Yeah. Because you kind of have to, to understand where people are coming from in yeah, the literature. Yeah. yeah. Um, but your background really is in uh, kind of uh, information information science, that be right? Or, yeah, or kind of. Information systems. Yeah. Um, so my undergrad was ICT, but I can't program your computer or fix it. So it had <laughs> a lot of socio-technical systems type yeah. stuff in it. And bits that were quite sts I suppose, mm. and the bits that were a bit information systems-y. And then my master's was digital library management, mm. and that was kind of a, it's an academic master's, but it's also a vocational one. Mm. It's accredited by CILIT, which is the chartered organization for mm. library information people. Um, but I always knew that I wanted to do a PhD. Mm. Um, so uh, I ended up in the information school, staying in the information school to do that. But I sort of don't really, belong there either I think I belong everywhere and nowhere at once yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. a citizen of nowhere yeah yeah I think <laughs> if you're doing digital stuff it can be a bit like that mm. yeah because I think you have to kind of you have to expand out a bit and you have to learn about these things you maybe wouldn't have thought you would be otherwise yeah exactly because um, it's a fast to... developing field so mm. you have to look at the stuff that's happening in other bits of it to get you have to look at the anthropology and the sociology mm. and the STS and some political mm. science stuff and then some digital labor stuff which yeah. can sit in all sorts of areas and yeah um, so why to so to talk about your research for a little while why does it, why is it important to understand how researchers and librarians share research um so obviously sh the sharing of research has been a fundamental part of just academic life for yeah as long as there's been academics I suppose yeah. in terms of getting that published and circulating it and being part of a scholarly discussion um, but what's um, what's important about kind of how that's done today would you say um, there's a lot of stuff about journals and journal prestige mm. and stuff like that and then in the sort of policy context particularly in the UK we've had institutional mandates for in some cases over 10 years to mm. put stuff in the institutional repository and people just didn't so by in, if people don't know by institutional repository what do you mean i mean uh the website usually the your university has for uploading mostly pdfs of journal articles maybe conference proceedings and other stuff it's different universities have different rules mm. on what they put let you put in some places it's like we're just grateful you're giving us stuff yeah. put everything in and then other places are just stuff that's peer reviewed so it can be quite restrictive and uh, since the open access agenda has sort of come on it's been about not just having it closed access to the university but having it open access not mm. just having information about it but having the full text um, but actually for a long time academics have just been doing 
adapt their own way. So obviously mm. sending PDFs around via email is not that different from sharing mm. off prints when we had photocopies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, certain disciplines have disciplinary, disciplinary places where they share stuff either before or after it's published, like archive, for mm. physics and maths and stuff like that. Um, and a lot of academics have uploaded stuff to their own website. Um, and then sort of more recent years, academia.edu and ResearchGate. There's a lot more stuff in ResearchGate in the sciences, certainly, and mm. certain parts of social sciences than there is in any other format. And part of that's because you don't have to respect the copyright rules. But the library side of things was just going, these websites aren't an institutional repository, use our institutional repository. And since last year, the UK have had a hefty mandate that you have to put everything in your repository if you're a UK researcher and you want it to be considered for the REF uh, on acceptance, not even on publication, but on acceptance. And it's requiring a lot of work in libraries to kind of get that to happen and some of them will say oh we're on like 80 percent compliance or on 90 percent compliance but it turns out they actually don't know lots of the stuff that exists because mm -hmm. in some disciplines not everything is listed by sort of weather science or scopus and it doesn't consider stuff that's not referable outputs like book chapters. Mm. So I wanted to see what people were actually doing and what they actually thought about it beyond the loudest voices. Um, on the topic um, and academia has had a lot of noise about it in the past couple of years people saying it should be boycotted because it's a for-profit service mm. but actually a lot of the institutional systems and a lot of the platforms outside of that are also for-profit so yeah so <laughs> it, so it, how does the for-profits for-profit for system of for instance academia.edu work so is it kind of effectively like a um, working towards a sort of a platform Facebook type model or I don't think they really know it looks to me I've been mapping out all of the different systems within open and what they're connected to and how they're funded and academia.edu is venture capital funded it hasn't got that many big investors they've tried to monetize various bits of it mm. so you can have your own website with them which, um, which looks a bit like your institutional one to be honest or you can pay to see how many how many people yeah. have mentioned your work they keep trying different things originally they were using a sort of headhunting model and doing job adverts on there sort of like a linkedin yeah kind. whereas researchgate has had a lot of money from really big venture capital funders like peter teal's fund and ashton kutcher's fund and also from funders like welcome mm. and the gates foundation almost like it's going to be an alternative to the existing mm systems and status quo so it's kind of hard to tell where they're going but people don't really think about the sustainability of these infrastructures because i like to think about it from an infrastructure perspective that infrastructure is a practice and that human infrastructure is part of it so there's a lot of free labor that's involved and mm. undercompensated labor so i get into all the digital labor issues um yeah. and there's a lot of uh issues with funding because if it's venture capital funded like any platform so either going to try to be the uber of whatever mm. um and get bigger and bigger or they're going to get acquired or they're going to shut down so mm. people get upset when the platform they're using gets acquired say ssrn which was a service or still is a service for social science researchers to share preprints and working papers and postprints of their stuff and is used a lot in certain fields particularly mm -hmm. law i've found and um, that was bought by elsevier a major academic mm -hmm. publisher last year and been integrated into their pipeline of stuff mm -hmm. um and they were always actually a for-profit company mm -hmm. so they were always vulnerable to that it's it's an interesting space to see platformization happen and it's exactly the same people funding these platforms as this funding platforms in other areas yeah so we shouldn't i suppose it's the lesson that we shouldn't really see them as being any different from these other kind of commercial platforms exactly even though they have um i think e even just having the the extension dot edu dot uh, edu makes it seem something like with academia .edu, it makes it seem like something that's non um, not part of that commercial sphere. That's it. It feels like it's in your interest and yeah. you're in control of it. And 
people felt like that to a certain extent about ResearchGate and mm. it makes it's a lot easier to put stuff in there than it is to do it in a, the proper way if you yeah. like because you don't have to check what version it is you can upload it when you feel like mm. they ask you if something's yours you just say yes your co-authors mm. can upload it for you and there's certain functionalities on those sites like being able to follow other researchers mm. and download stuff that's really helpful that proper systems don't mm. really do all that well because they don't really get how social networking works really they're quite dismissive of it yeah but yeah there's it's it's a commercial system and if you're kind of critical of commercial systems but then the whole of open source is is on github all the codes on github and that's a for-profit non-open source system mm. in itself that's having financial troubles and has the same problems with its workforce if you like that we've heard from google this mm. week and so yeah, on right. you know that it's horribly sexist to work in these places mm. their diversity initiatives are a tire fire yeah i mean I, again so on an infrastructural level one of the problems with as you've 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 mentioned already one of the problems with these systems is they they only work on scale yeah if it is uh, if they're using this kind of commercial kind of uh, yeah. approach they have to be effectively the biggest yeah or nothing um they have to have captured everything uh, of that network and um because it's effectively it's it's i'm increasingly thinking the whole kind of digital capitalist system is effectively like it is a ponzi scheme and yeah so if you didn't get in early or at the right stage of whatever your bit of that seems to be then you can't re it's in it's increasingly hard to be uh sort of an interest into that system yeah, without um, being swallowed. Uh, yeah. Unless you get unless you get swallowed up and just become part of Google or, or Facebook or Amazon or whatever. And that's definitely a, a business model, not just yeah. in Silicon Valley where people yeah. hope to be acquired by Google yeah, where yeah. they're just hired for their expertise and not the actual idea. But also smaller startups. I mean, digital science, which are part of the same publishing group as Springer Nature, but deliberately sort of kept out of being under that umbrella, but they're all owned by Holtzbrink. Oh, since the merger, um, they make themselves sound friendly to researchers. Hey, we're digital science. We have T-shirts that say, I love science. Mm. We give you a free coffee mug for Figshare. We're here to help you. And a lot of the platforms within the digital science uh, umbrella started a startup run by, run by PhD students mm. or former researchers. Um, they... Uh, they were scholar friendly, they were really open. Mm. They got a bit of seed money from X, Y, and Z places, but they all just get absorbed because it's not possible to work unless you have those network effects of everybody being mm. on your platform. If not everybody uses you, you've basically failed. So if we assume that there's at least a certain mass of researchers and, uh, and, and librarians and others involved in, in these kind of processes that don't want to be effectively providing their um, uh, their sort of free labor, their digital labor, and their their research or their skills for nothing to these platforms. Yeah. Um, is are the uh, are these open uh, platforms supposedly open platforms that are outside of institutions? Is there no other option? Um, well, this is it, because it seems to some librarians like there's a clean solution. Use the institutional yeah. platform and we'll network those and that will all be great. But when we first had institutional repositories, say, 10 years ago, then lots of institutions were using either ePrints or DSpace and managing right. them in-house and they were open source systems and nobody was transferring your data anywhere that they mm. shouldn't. So it seemed reasonable. And also more people were on permanent contracts, so it seemed mm. worthwhile investing in a institutional platform but now if you're on a precarious contract is it worth in investing in an institutional platform to start with and also the big players those centralizing players within digital capitalism have moved into this space they've looked at all the experiments that have been done in these platforms and in scholarly communication over the past 10 years hoovered up all the little pieces of the workflow and then sold that to libraries and to research offices so places that would have had a fully open system with their own database of what research was coming out in the institution and their institution repository on open software is at least part or all 
based on systems that are owned by digital science or Elsevier. They've got Symplectic, which is digital science, or they've got Pure, which is Elsevier. Uh, in the US, their market used to be a lot of DSpace, but a lot of them now are on Digital Commons, which is owned by B Press, which was bought last week by Elsevier. So they're all <laughs> horrified. So they own everything. Yeah, they own everything, and but uh, uh, are they are they assume they're accessing the data as well. Well, then? of course, because that's the value. Yeah. I mean, that's one of the things that I've been trying to explain through my research is that institutions will say, "Well, they don't own the data; we mm. own the data." And I'll go, "Well, yes, but if they own every part of the pipeline and they have access to your." your data that the institution holds about you and then mm. other parts of the business like Elsevier have a uh, or a data broker, broker as LexisNexis in another part of their business mm. so they have access to probably your personal data and your social media and data that's got nothing to do with your institutional data they've got access to data about your publications data mm. that's used to make employment based metrics your citations everything um, and they, they're the only ones who have access to all of that and can mm. build products based on that there are fully open alternatives if you like like humanities commons exists and quite a few what are loosely termed preprint servers but are used to share all kinds of stuff um that are like social archive and things like that mm. that have been set up for the social sciences but they're all grant funded and that's not particularly sustainable in the mm. long term either because grant funding is project based so it's usually used to set something up mm it's not generally used to keep things going long term and if you look at say archive which i spoke about before they have to keep sending begging letters to university libraries and to a certain extent their users to get money to keep going mm. so without the kind of long-term investment you don't know if you're putting stuff in something that's going to disappear should this uh, the, the, this research and data really be seen as a kind of a public good which is state or um higher level kind of uh, european mm. well if we were part of europe um uh, funded um and therefore kept out of that kind of um precarity of it of being dependent on donations or or grants and or and kept out of that commercial sphere would that solve any of these kind of problems I think it's a better, more sustainable long-term mm. solution to go, if we value this stuff, we're going to pay for it. Mm. And we're not going to have a sort of postcode lottery, if mm. you like, where certain institutions can afford to, or will value it and put money Because there, there is a day. precedent for that, isn't yeah. there? You know, in terms of the like, UK data service or, or whatever it's called now, um, in terms yeah. of storing kind of um, uh, data for, for secondary analysis. Yeah, my position is if, if it's infrastructure, Mm. then value it so mm. pay for the pay for the technology to be kept out of profit and pay mm. for the people to work on it because that's one of the issues is that you know the hefke mandate came in to, for, for everything to be put in for the ref but in most uk academic libraries there's only 1.5 full-time people who's employed to mm. work on this and they've had to drag in other people on an ad hoc basis to just keep up with compliance mm. um, which is suboptimal mm. and smaller institutions require a lot of labor from the academics who don't have a lot of time to put stuff in and sort stuff out whereas more rich and research intensive mm. institutions can basically just go email us what you've got and we'll sort it out for yeah. you yeah absolutely i think that's what, what i've certainly found in my experiences constantly learning how to use different systems mm. forgetting because it might be six months until i use it again when i've got something else to, to yeah. do uh, and, and that's not just about um things like symplectic or you know uploading to these kinds of repositories it's it's for, for, for research uh, funding and various yeah other all things. the form filling that you have to do exactly yeah um and it would be really nice if there was someone who just knows how to do that who yeah. just kind of get it and one of the other problems with it being not considered to be infrastructure, if you like, for it to be considered various different bits of platforms and services, is that there's no real interoperability between mm. it all. So you're having to enter stuff into a million different systems. Yep. You're not, you know, it's not that there's not in the interests of either the commercial providers to pass stuff between them very mm. well. They kind of hobble it a bit, there's some standards, or institutions, because institutions are encouraged to compete. Mm. And then now, of course, individual academics are encouraged to compete and all of the data 
that's coming out of these systems is used for metrics mm. so that when redundancies happen they're looking at your citations they're yeah. looking at your h index they're looking at the impact factor of the journals in which you publish mm. they're looking at your levels of grant income mm. all the data they, they get out of the system is sort of being used to control you and, and this is it and uh, you mentioned previously about the kind of increasing precarity that a lot of people Absolutely. are in and to me then that makes sense of why people wouldn't invest uh, on an individual level exactly. into these uh, university level um systems um because actually if i'm thinking i'm going to be out of a job here in six months or a year you know maybe if i'm lucky and then i'm going to be looking for another job i may as well be building up my profile outside of that whether that is on academia.edu or just on twitter or, or, or whatever else what is the purpose of this internal thing other than just to keep my keep my boss happy exactly so you you know if you're precarious and you you or you don't even have research in your contract mm. which happens to a lot of yeah, people yeah. so you don't necessarily as an associate lecturer in some places have access to mm. the repository you might not have the status to do what you want to do even if you were keen mm. <laughs> um if you want to, people to find you you kind of have to do that whole self-branding mm. thing in digital capitalism that yeah when people entrepreneurial self yeah yeah the academic entrepreneurial self is is real and people mm. get stuck into um, the whole academic quantified self as well mm. that they're constantly looking at their numbers and comparing them with other people that all of these platforms have their own metrics even mm. within them some of them have metrics embedded like altmetric which is part of digital science or wasn't originally uh, yeah. and plum analytics which got bought by Elsevier but also ResearchGate has its own scores obviously mm. Google Scholar's got its own yeah. stuff academia will tell you a certain amount and then more if you mm. pay and people are looking at that and looking at their twitter engagement and mm. sort of panicking that their numbers don't look good and mm. trying to game it all the time and so uh, from your research are these kinds of issues what things you've been talking about with, yeah with things have definitely been coming up and also the difficulty of the library communicating with researchers because mm researchers are bombarded with emails they're not necessarily on campus all the time they've got so many people who just want just want half an hour of your time to mm. tell you about something that's probably not that, not that interesting mm. it's lumped into the same thing i mean I, I don't know how many emails you get a day but it's a ridiculous amount and they're all supposed to be urgent yeah, <laughs> yeah. you get a lot with the red uh, exclamation mark I yeah <laughs> so i'm finding that actually despite there being this policy for a whole year that there are people um, who don't even know that it exists because nobody's. If, if it's been communicated through a staff meeting, they probably weren't at that staff meeting yeah. because researchers are quite atomized now. Yeah. That if you don't have a lab, if you're not in a lab based science, then you're not going to yeah, have a PI that tells you. Yeah. It's 3D enabled, so the middle They're very good because it's very steep like this. You're only about nine metres, ten metres from the person who's lecturing. We'll be gone in a few seconds. Okay. to know that the lights are the internet of things oh, is that what you said? oh he said he said that each of the lights is led lights and has an ip address that's how far we've gone with academia that the lights in the lecture theater so what's the purpose of that i suspect it might be so you can control you can control them all individually yeah but if something's got an ip address that means you can do other things well, exactly. with it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what doesn't have an ip address now though exactly and there's obviously there's cameras for Panopto. Yeah. And there's microphones as well as speakers. Yeah. We are actually in the Panopticon. We are literally. Yeah. The, the, the windows. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It is, it is funny how, like, they love using. Um, people, it seems, people in technology do love using creepy names. Mm. You know, like Panopto. Panopto. Like, yeah. And what's that, um, uh, that, that, that system? That's uh, pa the Palantir. Oh yeah, yeah. 
Um, it was it's one of the, the spy yeah. things, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. 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 That's Peter Thiel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, he's a massively creepy guy. Anyway, isn't yeah, it? no, but all of his all of his little companies, Peter Thiel, are kind of named after creepy things. Mm. And I noticed there was a article in the Intercept yesterday, which is always if if you want to be paranoid about the world, <laughs> worth a look at. That showed the list of companies that are sort of tendering to Trump to. Uh, find ways of categorising people and doing terrible things yeah. basically I can't remember the actual details because I'll I was looking at it on my phone it's worth looking at but I wasn't at all surprised to see Lexis Nexus on that list mm. which is Elsevier because I knew that their venture capital arm had invested in Palantir mm. but they've been right. beefing up the legal side of their business so both the, the bit that academics know about which is um Nexus to search, search all of the newspapers mm, and stuff like that, used, yeah, which yeah, is quite yeah. useful. Yeah. Or Lexis Nexus, which has, which is like legal databases, yeah. as an alternative to Westlaw. They fought a load of extra stuff to feed into that, but they also have the other side of Lexis Nexus, the data broker, which does risk scores for health insurance, mm, looks at your social right. media data, does lots of things that would be illegal in the UK, but they do mm. in other jurisdictions, and make products for the law professions for lawyers and for police and mm. um, you can combine on your device open data civic data proprietary data and the data the police hold to work out whether it's worth making an arrest or mm. whether you think a, co a case is worth taking to court and sort of yeah. they're also getting to border security which mm. a lot of countries now they've become more atomized and individualized the nation state has become very politicized well it has hasn't it yeah. and like that's what it's, it's one of these things that like when i first started studying sociology in like god like 1999 or something and all the way through doing my first degree really was the whole narrative was towards uh, globalization mm -hmm. you know and we were basically told that you know the the death of the nation state is coming mm. it might be positive it might be negative but really that's what's mm. happening and you know moving towards um this kind of sort of open networked world and mm. all that kind of thing um and um but often it was quite a positive message as well yeah. of um of co cooperation and, and internationalization mm. and it's that's not how that's not how it's how it's working out no uh, and of pe generally people being more uh, becoming more enlightened about the kind of um, uh, environmental issues and gender well, issues we've and this got, kind of we thing. Can't, part of the reason why borders are being so heavily mm. policed is partly people moving for employment reasons mm. and and being refugees for, yeah. for, for reasons to do with gender, sexuality, yeah. race, things like that. But also the ch ch climate change is Absolutely, forcing yeah, people yeah. out of whole and, regions and in the next sort of 10 to 20 years it's going to really start to hit home in places where it's not been felt before well that's I it imagine, like, well generally in Europe and non-Europe in, Europe, in academia there's a lot America. of sort of it is all connected not just because mm. the companies are connected but there's a sort of a, a certain amount of hypocrisy and double think about this because people mm. are ha criticising the Anthropocene and the Capitalocene yeah. in their very expensive books yeah. for these massive academic publishers or their articles mm. while flying around the world to talk about them yeah. while sitting in a permanent post mm. when in the US I think over 70% of the sector is casualised and in the UK it's what 49% or something yeah, I, know I don't know, you see yeah, you have figures lot, on yeah. it but it's it's quite a lot mm. um, while the you know communities in their own city are on zero hours contracts yeah. while cleaners are being on zero hours contracts mm. at their own institution yeah. um, while their own pension if you look on the USS pension site tells you who the, what the top equities are that USS are investing in at any time and there's always Royal Dutch Shell at the top so anybody's complaining about oil well that's yeah. there Alphabet which is Google is always there yeah. Facebook's always there Elsevier is always there it's you know I don't think it's possible to opt out and be clean if you like no but if you're being a critical scholar and you're mm. not talking about your own backyard at the mm. moment you're kind of being disingenuous i think yeah yeah absolutely so all these systems are connected because we're in 
what some people are calling the, the fourth industrial revolution and the fourth mm. industrial revolution is about data yeah absolutely it's not just about owning it it's about selling it and reforming it and repackaging it yeah. and so businesses are reshaping then not just gone from products to services but gone from products and services to their prime business being data and yeah. Elsevier have made and, no and secret of that and the infrastructures and, and the and infrastructures the and the yeah. networks so you know Uber isn't a ride-sharing company no that's what they tell you no, they well, are there's no sharing there's on. no <laughs> sharing because it, it's not just jumping in some stranger's car it's a job no. and they're employing people and they refuse mm. to say that but also the value for them in the business isn't you paying however many pounds or dollars to get mm. in somebody's taxi it's all of the data that's been generated about it absolutely and because they don't make any money no, they well, don't. They don't make any profit. No, you know? no, they're making a loss and all that. Yeah, like and they're Amazon going, and they're make going a loss. for a long time. Yeah, Amazon make a loss. Yeah. Amazon were originally a bookshop online, yeah. and well, yeah. they make a loss on their on their sales. Yeah, they make a loss on their sales. So that their original thing was yeah. selling stuff from their warehouses yeah, yeah. that was mostly selling books. Products, so yeah, yeah. They were selling other products, mm. and now their main business is the web services yeah. and logis- and the money, logistics. Yeah. So mm. stuff that comes from their warehouse or from other warehouses via their logistics network. And again, the data that they have from their recommender exactly. engine engine that they can sell to other people. But, and again, it's the it's about keeping everyone and um, it's about those network effects. Yeah. But they need it all. Yeah, you need and all of the parts. Exactly, and I think people yeah, yeah. are kind of it's too easy to go, Oh, well, this is all problematic because mm. neoliberalism or there's that, you know, phrase that people like to throw around that, you know, if the product is free, then you're mm. the product. Well, if the product is paying, if you're paying for the product now, you you are also the product mm. because there's no model now that doesn't take that into account. They're mm. all portfolio models. Mm. If you buy, if you pay for a service or you buy something in a shop, part of the model is that makes that product cheaper for you to buy mm. is the data side of it. Mm. If you use, even if you don't use your Tesco club card to yeah. get <laughs> the data, you're being picked up by the CCTV. Yeah. Your the buying habits are are being measured in an aggregate, yeah. and it's not just used to serve their own, you know, pro- customers, but it's mm. also providing further statistics to the wider sector. Mm. It's. It, you can't actually escape this anymore. It's not something you can say. No, you're not so, doing. well, certainly not on an individual level. No, you can't just go. I'm not using Facebook, so no. you're a sheep, and the yeah, sheeple, yeah. sheeple yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. the sheep, the sheeple, sheeple are all. And it's like, do 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 you live completely off grid? Mm. Because if you go anywhere well, <laughs> or do anything, but the point is actually. <laughs> the, um, so um, the, we've seen a lot of this recently, but um, it's um, is it Jamie Bartlett has just done mm. this documentary which i think is on on like iplayer bbc um interviewing um like facebook and other executives mm. who are going and buying like islands near seattle mm. um i think and things like that to go and live off the grid and i know mm. when trump got into power loads of um tech billionaires bought land in new zealand because they thought that you know mm. uh, you know they're hedging their bets and, and because they're, they're partly because they've got this conspiracy theorist um uh, well not even conspiracy theorist but like um Tech, tech dystopian view that there's going to be an end of the world sort of walking yeah. dead kind of scenario and they want to have their little stronghold with their guns and their yeah it's the bunker movement of the 1980s coming exactly back. yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, it's spun through them saying well I like one of the guys he interviewed actually literally says look I I, I, I come from the future because I used to work yeah. at Facebook um, which means I lived in the future um, so I know what's going to happen um, but exactly, it, it's it's that kind of there is that idea of actually I, I can go and live off the grid, but literally to do that you have to be on on an isolated <laughs> island. You do, in, and you can't have any of, of the, the great lakes, not, so. not even not not the trappings of the future, but you can't have the trappings of now because if no. you have any kind of power that's not self-generated yeah. if you have any kind of network yeah. signal yeah, 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 yeah. you can't nobody can phone you nobody yeah. can the internet you can't buy any produce yeah, yeah. that you haven't produced yourself yeah you have to go a bit good life yeah get your dungarees yeah. on to kind of but it, it it's also like it seems to be to me to be linked to a sort of kind of um actually i'm not that into bodju uh but like mm. It, there's a distinction element to this, isn't it? Mm, there is. Uh, of the um, and this is where you see uh, things about people. You know, I, I'm I, I'm quitting the internet. I'm quitting social mm. media. 
because um but you can only really do that if you're kind of of a certain kind of status you know celebrities love to kind of say i don't use social media it's just too much no, it's like people who say i'm gonna quit i'm gonna quit academia because yeah, it's yeah. all so terrible and oppressive the yeah, managerialism exactly, yeah. it's funny how you only ever see people at the beginning and end of the journey who get to quit academia. Yeah, exactly, so there's people yeah. who finish their PhD and go, it's not for them, which yeah, is fine. And there's always yeah. happened and should happen. Yeah, people yeah. shouldn't feel pressured. And then there's a lot of white middle class people in their 50s who yeah. go, I want to leave academia. I'm retiring mm. from academia. Yeah. Well, that's fine because you took the money for 40 years. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Maybe, you, can, maybe you can actually make a living writing kind of yeah, pop, you pop can, psychology books. You can write now, pop psychology or you can be a yeah. consultant or yeah. even you could, you've silted away because you didn't need all that money to live off. Exactly, yeah, yeah. You have savings. My got, God, you have a pension. Ten student houses that you're collecting rent from and this kind of thing. Exactly. Can, can other people actually afford to quit? What, yeah. what would they do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you, it's all very well if you're a scientist who can go into industry mm. or you're so far on in your career that you can be a consultant. Mm. But if you're sort of mid-career, what, yeah, what choice yeah. actually do you have? Absolutely, yeah. Not a lot. Yeah. So the... Um, approach you've used in your research you've described as i think connective ethnography is yeah. that right so could you tell me what you mean by that well that's nick from christine hine okay okay so her stuff is worth reading yeah um and basically it's because i originally was just going to do interviews because i've always done interviews that's what i know mm. i'm quite lazy in that regard <laughs> i know i'm good at interviewing or reasonably good at interviewing so i know i get good stuff out but i knew that i also wanted to look at really the difference between what people said and what people actually do so mm. people will say oh i don't do this or you can't find my stuff or you can't find my stuff and then you google them and you find mm. you know you virtually stalk them sorry participant observation mm. um you, <laughs> you find that the truth is actually perhaps different mm. um so i was like well i need to build that in and then i was reading some sort of netography stuff netography i can't mm, pronounce half of these yeah. things um and internet ethnography and digital ethnography they're all somehow similar and different um multi-sighted ethnography because i couldn't just go and live with a couple of academics <laughs> for a year not within the context of a phd no. not within the context of a phd in a department that doesn't really do ethnography no. even if it might use the word occasionally yeah so I was like, well, I want to see, I don't think there's a real division between on and offline, and I don't think there is in the way people work now. You're yeah. sort of doing both at the same time, you're often multitasking. And connective ethnography kind of said, you know, that you're doing stuff online, you're doing stuff offline, you're doing stuff in different spaces. You can be multi-sighted as the same person. Mm. Um, you know, when you start looking beyond just a person in a lab, that whole lab construct, mm. the idea of the researcher in their ivory tower with the walls of books and the leather armchair or the white coat and the lab. It doesn't really reflect how a lot of academia is done no. now. And I really don't want to stalk you to your house. <laughs> <laughs> so, what so kinds of, what kinds of things do you use as data sources so, so as well as interviews? So I've got, uh, yes, I've got the interviews uh, and hopefully doing multiple interviews with some people to go back on some stuff as time mm. passes. Um, I've been using uh, the visitors and residents methodology to look at how people's digital tool use works and how they feel about the different tools because I think there's no point making claims about what systems say, academics use or how librarians feel about systems without knowing how that sits with their other mm. on and offline tool use. So mm. if somebody absolutely objects to all social media and there are people who do that there's probably a greater chance that they're not going to want to use the institutional systems yep. either true, yeah. um so i wanted to be able to look at that and it helps them to think and talk around what their own practices are because if you ask people straight out they'll give you a pat answer mm. um what Dave Wye, who came up with the visitors and residents thing, sort of calls the academic black market. You know, if you ask students or you ask academics what they use, they'll say what they think you want to mm. hear or what they should say mm. or what they believe people in their discipline would say. And then actually, they're on Wikipedia and Google like the mm. rest of us. Uh, <laughs> or you know, or actually, you do log, you do have your work email on your phone, so you are looking at it at ten o'clock at night, but mm. it's also your fault. So I wanted to, to get dig into that and how people actually felt about the things they were using, whether they had to use them and mm. 
mm. how much they use them. I mean, if you only use, say, those systems once every six months, that's going to change how you think about them compared to if you're on Twitter every day as yeah. well. It's not just because they're digital no. or who are their owned by. It's sort of how and when you use them and who makes you use them. Um, and I look at digital traces more than logs because I don't have access to the logs of... Uh, academia and research yeah. gate but what I can do is I can google people and see what comes up on mm. a clean research browser I can scrape stuff from those pages and see what's similar and different to how mm. things appear so I'm doing that um, I'm making field notes because there's a lot of stuff actually that people talk about that I can't report because it gets quite personal because people end up talking about their academic life and how that twines with their personal life and issues that they've had and how that affects what they've done and their publication decisions and stuff like that but my reflections on that are useful mm. I think yeah. um, and being considerate of people um, I've also been doing um, I was going to do diaries but that didn't work <laughs> except because nobody wanted to fill in more forms <laughs> um, but I do ask people about time as part of the interview and it's not perfect um, and I do poetic transcription so I try to get the voice back out from from the interviews because I feel it's flattened a bit by using mm -hmm. selective quotation. So I try to use a lot of stuff. I've got a lot of data. My interviews tend to stretch quite long as well. Yeah. Because people find it quite cathartic. I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah definitely. I, and yeah. It, well, and it is. I mean, people like to talk talk about the things that they're doing and they're yeah, doing like exactly. That. And, and and if you're an academic. I mean, people do talk to to colleagues, but often, if you spend a lot of time with people outside of that, they either don't understand what you're talking about, or they're, or they're not interested, which is perfectly understandable because it's pretty boring. Well, um, and I don't think people really understand the heterogeneity. Another word I can't say. Lots of words we like to write down and can't yeah. say. <laughs> of of practices and experiences, no. because the systems are often designed from the perspective of the groups that have the most funding and the most mm. imperatives to do stuff and the most standardization standardizable behavior which is lab scientists in mm. the life sciences that's and high energy physics that's where the money is mm. they have the most funding they have pis and research assistants and research associates and phds all working on the project so everything's based around the idea that you have a pi and you have a project and mm. that you have a lab and that everything is uh quantitative it, i think it, it's sort of the easiest model to get for people to get their head around as well exactly and In, so including kind of yeah, yeah. absolutely you know as opposed to someone who writes kind of uh, well, uh, the kind of thing you do, but even mm. uh, or even maybe even more so, just kind of purely theoretical kind of you know, social theory, that kind of thing. How, how do you tie that down into some kind of model or system of uh, of assessment or in terms of outputs and these kinds of things? It doesn't really no. seem to fit with that. No, it? and people don't realise how reductive the systems are. No. I mean, people moan a lot about the impact agenda and some of the mm. arguments are valid and some of them are very much not. <laughs> um, mm. But it, the, tr the truth is it doesn't really capture a lot of the stuff that people in humanities and social sciences do. Because if it's not an article yeah. and it's not a referee conference chapter and it's not a monograph, it doesn't count for most assessment exercises. Mm. So it, And it doesn't get listed in the databases mm. and it doesn't come up in the metrics, so it doesn't count. But mm. if you go and do a talk to 200 people about an area of your research, that's actually a lot more valuable in mm. terms of speaking to different publics than writing a journal article is. Yeah, yeah. If you do a blog post that's read by thousands of people mm. and ends up on an undergraduate syllabus, that's not really counted by the system. They don't care. Mm. If you write a book chapter that's in an edited collection that uh, ends up sitting outside of its collection because you upload it somewhere and loads of people get hold of it and they find it an accessible piece of writing that's not counted either no. <laughs> everything becomes about the model of assessment which works incredibly well for the sorts of projects where you can salami slice 30 articles out of it mm. particularly if you can get on those of articles as a co-author to which you only yeah, have to yeah. contribute a tiny part and if you're doing critical social science and you have to spend a long time explaining mm. what you're doing and talking about what you're doing and it might take you three years to get an article out mm. 
when you're in the humanities and it takes you four years to get a book out mm. books are only double weighted in the rest yeah so everything's designed around a particular model of what an academic is mm. and when they talk about say open access they think about getting those open access fees paid yeah and still being able to be in the big prestige journal and everything like that and being able to apply for money to do outreach work as part of their project and actually the reality for most researchers is they don't get loads of external funding and they don't get loads of support mm. within their department and they don't have an admin bod costed into their project doing mm. filling all these forms out for them there's a lot more labor that's outside of Absolutely. the system and not considered we'll finish by talking about um about ed balls and <laughs> yes. uh gifts uh, and things like this so um, you've written about you actually wrote a, a really fascinating article and I'll link to it um, as to some of your other stuff um, through the um, through my blog but um, um, about uh, on the Discover Society site yeah. um, about your your kind of political fandom of Ed Balls and meeting the man himself and yeah. and this kind of thing so um, but the, I suppose the, the broader context of that other than just kind of um, uh, liking has a kind of a public or political figure and, and 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 watching strictly come dancing and this kind of thing is i suppose is the uh, the kind of the um the, the the particular type of uh politics which is um built up around sort of this notion of political fandom and particularly through kind of social media yeah. and the use of memes and gifts and this kind of thing so uh, what is it you find kind of interesting about um about ed balls as maybe as kind of personifying some aspects of that um, I think it's to do with the humanising of politics, I think, um, that there's a lot more going on than people who just shout populism or like mm. entertainment um, would think about. So there genuinely is, as I've written about in the article, a pol politics fandom movement, mm. some of which is semi-ironic. <laughs> at the very least yeah. at the very least um, some of which is very genuine and then there's the personality cult stuff which mm. can get quite scary in terms of the mm. tribalism of it that you can the, some Corbynistas if you like are quite poisonous online but mm. then some are some centrists they're mm. all calling each other names and defending their position that's very polarised quite hard and then there's some stuff that's actually digital campaigning that mm. gets lumped in because if you want to speak to a certain group of people who are online all the time then gifts and memes are a way to do it mm. which you know there's people who genuinely want Jake and Rees-Mogg to get elected and are sort of drawing on some of the fandom stuff and mm. some of the ironic stuff mm. to try and make that happen um, and uh, and there's just people on the internet being bored and just enjoying sharing reaction gifts. Mm. I mean, one of the reasons why Ed Balls works very well within this space is that he had a popular perception of him that wasn't necessarily that truthful. He came out of politics and well, he came out about his st st stammer, his interiorised stammer, which I also have, <laughs> so that's kind of coming out in this interview sometimes. Um, um, he came out of politics and wrote a book and then ended up on bake off and then celebrity bake off and then strictly mm. and became this kind of popular figure that people who have nothing to do with politics mm. which is him but he he's he's always been quite personable and he's let more of who he is come out and it seems a shame that he and ed Miliband and various others have only been able to do that once they no longer have the spotlight on them of being at the top table and that people actually want that in the world of social media celebrity and influence and stuff like that. They actually want to see a real person and contrast that with Theresa May, who mm. is clearly very uncomfortable mm. with any of that kind of thing. Whatever you think of her politics, it's just not a world that she feels comfortable in, whether it's the digital side of selfies and mm. knowing that you're being filmed for YouTube or whatever, or whether it's just talking to people. Mm. She just doesn't want to do it and it seems to be going against her whereas obviously Jeremy Corbyn is building a populist movement and also a political movement by being more personable and having this hinterland of marrows that's funny <laughs> the jam and the marrows is funny yeah. but it's also lovable and yeah. actually one thing I've always loved about British popular culture in particular is it being a bit rubbish yeah but trying really hard yeah and that's why we love Ed Balls mm. 
and that's why we love to a certain extent Jeremy Corbyn and other figures because yeah. it's in America everything's so polished yeah. that even a real person basically looks like you know Jennifer Aniston or something mm. and here we're all just a bit wonky and we're more Kathy Burke really yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I mean the, the, the whole history of sort of British sitcoms is yeah. it, it, it is either about kind of, it's, it's about class tension yeah usually but is again it's also is is actually about kind of fairly ordinary people striving for something but but not quite getting yeah. there and failing and usually yeah and the comedy of embarrassment you know yeah. Alan Partridge exactly, yeah. we love him we hate him we see ourselves in him yeah yeah like that's a good reason that he's the voice of he's going to be the voice of Brexit exactly, it's kind of yeah, that's yeah. perfect and you can't get that anywhere other than here no. And I love that. There isn't. I, I'd had a thread on Twitter recently, which you may or may not have seen, where I was ranting about Doctor Who because the mm. American reaction to a new female Doctor Who mm. was c- quite different from ours. And it's not that there weren't people of colour in the UK talking about, oh, it would be mm. nice to have a person of colour. But in America, they were very much seeing the show as. And it's how it's sold there and how all the merchandise mm. is there as being on the same. Uh, plain as Star Trek mm. or Supernatural or Supergirl or Game of Thrones, so kind of cult TV shows that have a lot of merchandise and have a teens upwards following mm. and um, Marvel Universe stuff, Netflixy, mm. shiny, shiny. And it's like, well, no, Doctor Who is actually closer to Blue Peter yeah. and Strictly Come Dancing yeah. and Newsround. That's where it's an Emmerdale. That's where it sits. It's, it's, a, it's a mainstream. It's kind a of mainstream like program that you wonky. watch with your nan. Yeah, yeah. It's got no budget. Even when it's got a lot of budget, it has no budget compared with no. the shows that it's seen as being mm. on a on a par with. They, they just don't have the money to do all that. They're always pushing against whatever their budget is. They're always pushing yeah. against well, the edge of it. Uh, Charlie from Casualty gets paid more than uh, more than Peter the Cavaldi. Exactly. You know? <laughs> exactly. And that's ca- that's also kind of beautiful because Charlie yeah. from Casualty is a figure that's been in our lives from childhood and he's almost this kind of uncle that we yeah, all yeah, yeah. have. We all yeah. sort of, even if you haven't watched Casualty in years, you'll go, mm. oh, Charlie from Casualty. That mm. <laughs> you just wouldn't feel that way about TV stars anywhere else in the world. But do you think that there has has there been a shift in the in the kind of the political uh, kind of gravity almost in just in those couple of years since um, Ed Miliband uh, was uh, uh, and Ed Balls were in the Shallow Cabinet because it was at that stage it was unacceptable for them to be doing that kind of yeah you couldn't that, that personality whereas now yeah. actually that's what you know you couldn't trying eat to push a, Jacob yeah. Smog as yeah you, you know, couldn't eat a eat a vacant sandwich awkwardly no. and there were those photos of David Miliband with the banana and yes. confetti and god yeah. knows what else and it was like oh this is terrible and now it's uh, you know Emily Thornberry get, uh, you know getting a high five from Jeremy Corbyn that hits her boob it's you know pictures of politicians yeah. with vegetables it's Clive Lewis doing a big jump in the air when he gets elected yeah I think everything's sort of broken mm. in that in the past couple of years, everything that we thought was certain mm. has disappeared. Oh, the neoliberal agenda. Well, it's not that neoliberal ideas aren't still around, but you, you just you don't you're not going to definitely have a centrist government. No. You've got a choice between authoritarian and and socialist. <laughs> I mean, it's not mm. everything's sort of polarized. Um, we didn't. We thought everything was just going to stay in the status quo. So if you asked mm. anybody before the Brexit vote, even a lot of people who voted for the first time, they didn't think their vote would count. Yeah. They thought all oh, things. It'll be like the AV one or mm. or the Scottish independence thing. Everything's just going to more or less stay the same. It's going to be more or less how it's been since like 1993. Well, that that was I mean, that was absolutely the consensus. Yeah. All politicians are basically the same. You know, yeah. Like Clegg Cameron. Yeah. Band, they're all, all shiny suits. Yeah. yeah. Roughly kind of Blairite type yeah. figures. Nothing ever really changes. Politicians are all kind of corrupt yeah. and got duck houses and this kind of thing. Um, absolutely, and n- nothing really matters. Um, but that was kind of uh, spun on its head. Um, but it is also, and as you kind of hinted at before, really. Um, I suppose momentum in particular uh, behind mm. Corbyn in, in in general election from this year, 2017, uh, in the UK. Um, they did actually mobilise um, mm. 
the online and the memes and, and the yeah, and, and it was mostly organic stuff rather than yeah. stuff that being funded from HQ. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, but it was still kind of uh, it was still it, orchestrated. It was orchestrated, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, um, and one of the things that I think is um, it's slightly concerning is obviously I, I think the Conservatives are going to try to do that. I I, I can't imagine they've historically they've been a more um, um, politically um, electorally effective unit mm. on the whole um, mm. than Labour have whether they'll be able to mobilise in that way I don't know they'll, they'll certainly they'll certainly try I think um, but the other thing is I was listening to um, uh, the podcast uh, Talking Politics recently mm. David Runciman um, hosts which you may have heard I don't know yeah. um, and talking about the um, uh, the Trump election and this this idea that obviously you get a um, particularly in terms of American politics you get um, a, a president who reflects the kind of the dominant kind of media kind of culture mm. of the time JFK was kind of like a, the first kind of TV president and, and we've got the first Pepe president exactly exactly but the point is he can't actually even in even though he's kind of in power he can't get anything done no because he's not actually effective but what he can do um which is what he is doing is just being in constant um um campaigning mode yeah he's still doing rallies even though he, he is president well that's it and that's very much what labor are doing and they've yeah. gone we can't just wait until a general election and is announced and have six weeks to no to put a thing together we have to mm. be in our target seats every every weekend yeah but let's say whether it's labor or conservatives get in, into power yeah. and but then we probably have we quite possibly have another sort of um hung parliament coalition yeah, or yeah. something it seems unlikely we're going to have uh, maybe yeah. a majority government anytime soon we could get into this kind of constant stasis yeah. Like in America, where nothing gets passed, nothing get, nothing happens. Everyone's blocking everyone, and all you're really doing is campaigning. And it, it does seem to be accentuating that kind of populist. I think we're rushing towards electoral reform. To mm. be honest, um, it certainly here, way, it? Yeah. It, it's the only way to be fair, and it's terrifying to a lot of people because mm. obviously it means what did work before doesn't work. But not only have we kind of atomized and individualized everybody, but the the, the broad tents are a kind of a relatively recent phenomenon so it's people being able to vote who aren't the elite so first you had the elite and everything mm. just shifted between one party mm. and the other and then you built the broad coalitions of the mm. big parties which you know and those are all crumbling mm. you know even the green party which has had a ma had a massive growth in membership for a while it's still polarized between like the hippie nimbies mm. who are actually quite conservative in a lot of ways mm. and then the absolute far left hardline socialists and climate change activists mm. and they don't really find a way of resolving it which is part of why they can get a lot of votes in the country but not enough to get more seats mm. and people on the far left side of it have seen that they can vote for Jeremy Corbyn instead mm. so they don't re they can't really differentiate themselves the Lib Dems are struggling mm. obviously because they were the third way but that only works when you know things aren't this polarized yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's interesting times because yeah labor are just arguing amongst themselves the tories arguing amongst themselves is why we ended up with brexit mm -hmm. you can't really resolve the cameroons if you like the people who are kind of both socially and economically liberal which takes up some of the lib dems as well with the people who are like want everything to be 1952 mm. it's just not possible no none of these things can be reconciled and they can't be crushed either and there are some areas of policy that i think people now they, because they've been debating it online forever rather than just in the pub with their small circle mm. they can hear a wider range of voices actually probably think shouldn't be controlled by single parties mm. which, you know, education and the health service mm. probably should have a coalition or civil servants that w work on it outside of the mm. party systems because you can't change it every two years every four years every five years every time you decide to change the minister yeah it's really really harmful we found that with education policy it's really harmful yeah and i think we've seen that with the actually um with the last election that got teachers yeah saying 
and 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 uh, healthcare workers and this kind yeah. of thing as really identifying as as teachers politically yes rather than well the, nurses you know nurses, exactly. saying they'd strike for the first time and mm. they've always tried to avoid striking mm. they always tried to avoid being big p political because mm. they've got to serve such a wide mm. range of people and traditionally they had a wide you know they supported a wide range mm. of parties but they feel that they're pawns in mm. you know jeremy hunt's game because that's the thing it's not even a party's policies it's an individual mm. you know michael gove had his thing mm. jeremy hunt's had his thing and Joe Johnson on the university section's got his bees in his bonnet and mm. Andrew Adonis on the other side of it. Mm. You know, it's individual people trying to control yeah. massive, m massive employers. Um, so that might be how things go. Maybe, maybe we will get to that stage. But in the meantime, it's probably gifts. It's probably gifts. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think at a time when everything's awful and we have no attention. <laughs> yeah. I think initially I got into gifts because of reaction gifts. I think yeah. the whole I was into gifts years ago when I first had a computer, mm. but you know, nineties. But now it's like, yeah, reaction gifts, being mm. able to react to things. You know, emojis don't go quite go far enough. Mm. Here's a reaction gif, and there's been interesting stuff recently about digital blackface around. I, that, I've just which read is about really this. Cool. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, what characters people choose to perform as mm. and identify with is quite interesting. But then it was being able to live gif. It was being able to create a perfect loop within a program yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> whilst the program was still on and Ed Balls with his blinky eyes and his enthusiastic face he can't he's not got a poker face he can't <laughs> no. hide what he's thinking yeah. it's quite actually quite hard to capture Theresa May in a gift even if you wanted to because she's basically either got a completely flat expression mm. or the the beaker face you know the kind of look yeah. of like you can do a still photo of that you can't really well, well, it. <laughs> the ultimate Theresa May gif is the uh, eating a fish exactly because yeah, <laughs> that, that's when it kind of kind of started to crack yeah <laughs> I suppose <laughs> it is it is um and if you look at the most popular politicians I suppose at the moment they are aware of these formats yeah suit it quite well um El Emily Thornbury's Instagram account account doesn't have that many followers at the moment but it's a thing of beauty I'll check it out because it's a mixture of mum and politician <laughs> <laughs> it's like if your mum had a f an Instagram account yeah and then oh I've suddenly remembered that I'm actually an MP and a shadow minister <laughs> I, I enjoyed that we'll leave that as a recommendation but um thanks for talking to me and oh, thanks, Chris. we'll catch up soon <laughs> bye <laughs> bye